And of course, you know, as I've mentioned in the past, my thesis is the connection between abuse in childhood and the onset of adult autoimmune disease. In other words, abuse and dysfunction breeds a change in biology. It sickens the body, the mind, the heart, and everything. And that's why I started out by saying that dysfunction breeds distortion. Now, my message today is not intended to offend you. It's intended to convict you. I pray that the Holy Spirit would compel you to change. You've heard me say this a thousand times that the word that I bring today is like a scalpel that'll go straight to the heart and to the marrow. It is not to necessarily encourage you with laughter, but it's to encourage you to change, transformation. We're living in a time of complacency and comfort, and that is death to the Christian. But seriously, we're living in a time of great biblical ignorance, great biblical ignorance. We're living in a time when Christians believe that there is truth in the law of attraction and the law of manifestation. I see Christians left and right declaring and saying and declaring and saying and trying to manifest something that's anti-biblical. It goes against God. But yet we see Christians doing this and really what is to blame is ignorance. And ignorance is not bliss. Ignorance is death, destruction, it's poverty. But I see this left and right. Did you know that less than 20% of Christians today, born again believers in Christ, less than 20% believe in the veracity of the Word of God. Less than 20% believe that the Word of God is true from cover to cover, from Genesis to Revelation, only less than 20%. So in other words, two, out of every 10 in this room would be the ones to believe that the Bible is true from cover to cover. So we have a problem. 10% of baby boomers, baby boomers are 56 plus, 10% of baby boomers have a biblical worldview. 7% of Gen Xers, 45 through 55 years of age, 41 through 55 years of age, 7% have a biblical worldview. 6% of millennials, ages 26 through 40, have a biblical worldview. And only 4% of Gen Z's, which are 10 through 25, have a biblical worldview. Do you see a tendency? Do you see the decline? So whatever comes after Gen Z is probably gonna end up, you know, in the 3%, 2%. And then eventually it'll completely disappear. And now you're probably wondering, what on earth is a biblical worldview? How many of you know what a biblical worldview is? Raise your hand. Two, three, four, five, six, seven, yeah, some of you are like, I might as well raise my hand. Now, I'm a teacher. I'll call on you. I'll ask you for your interpretation or your definition of biblical worldview. I'm very interactive in my conferences and when I preach. So careful if you raise your hand. In layman terms, a biblical worldview is like a pair of glasses. Biblical worldview is the way that you see the world. It's how you define the world. It's how you react to the world. It's your decision-making process. It's how you live your life. Ultimately, how you see the world. Biblical worldview is putting on the biblical lenses and seeing everything through these lenses. Everything. Everything. And questioning everything through those lenses. I shared months ago that I was with my son at, uh, not Benson Park, but uh, Santa Ana, Wildlife Refuge. And I was riding my bike with him. We were coming around a trail. 
And as we came around a trail, there were two 21, 22-year-old men, two embraced kissing. And so my son gives me this look. He's bewildered. He's baffled. He's never seen anything like that before. 90% of parents do this. Shh. Don't say anything. Stop staring. Keep going. And then the son will say, what was that all about? And the parent will say, we don't talk about those things. That's their deal. That's their problem. And that's when we start to normalize things. I want you to listen. I mean, I really want you to take this home with you. Again, the message has nothing to do with this. I'm just barely getting started. But what I'm saying is that when you don't say anything about what the biblical worldview says is wrong, you normalize it. And so what did we do? We stopped. Not in an effort to throw a stone because we're all sinners, in case you didn't know it. We're all sinners. Not in an effort to throw a stone or to cast judgment, but to define what is right and what is wrong through the biblical worldview. And so there we stood and we talked. Now my son at nine years of age is very well versed in the scripture, in the word of God. He's been in Christian education since he was tiny. He's been going to church. We talk about it at home. And so we sat there and we talked about it. And I asked the question. I always answer with a question. He says, what was that all about? My question is, what do you think? Is that right? Is that right? Or is that wrong? What do you think? I don't want to give you the answer. Let's create some critical thinking in the kid. What does scripture say? And so he goes to Genesis and starts quoting scripture, paraphrasing, of course. And so we start to see things through the lens of a biblical worldview because if I don't distinguish right from wrong, I normalize those things in my children and they will grow up believing that it's okay. If you're a parent or a grandparent, as I am both, a parent and a grandparent, believe me, I'm on a journey. And my journey is to spread the gospel to the little ones, to create a biblical worldview in their hearts and in their minds. Repeat, 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 and repeat. There's something that's called mission drift. That's when you drift away from your mission when you start to forget who you are in Christ, when you start to forget those things, your mission starts to drift. And if you've noticed, media and the world today is very repetitious. They repeat, repeat, and repeat a mantra. They repeat an image. They repeat an idea, a philosophy. They're not subliminal anymore. They're in your face. They're loud, they're explosive, they're arrogant, and they're pompous. And they repeat, repeat, repeat. I mean, you go to Target, and again, I'm not bashing anyone's store, but of course, every one of us shops at Target. Target has a pride section. Not only that, but they've had a now a new partnership with a company called Tomboy X. I don't even want to get into those details. And so you're walking down the aisles with your children and all of a sudden they turn and they see these posters from that company and they're going to ask, what's that? What are you going to do? You're either going to stop and teach or you're going to say, shh, we don't talk about that. And the reason you don't talk about that is because you don't know what to say. That's the problem. 
The Bible says, Jesus said, you shall know the, and the truth will set you, okay. He says, you shall know the truth. It doesn't come by osmosis. It does not come by osmosis. I cannot just repeat a mantra and expect things to happen. I was a young Christian, 2001 in the summer, accepted Christ in this room, fell to my knees, compelled. I was the prodigal son living a terrible life. I was mad at God. My wife was dying, and I was upset, and I was here for the first time. And there was a guest speaker from Oklahoma. And he spoke a few words, and I fell to my knees. But I remember that I was, although I'd accepted Christ, I really didn't understand what I had done or what I should do. And I just started to watch TV, you know, those Christian preachers. And, and I thought that if I did what that guy from Houston does, just raising my Bible and walking around and saying, this is my Bible. I am what it says I am. I can do what it says I can do. I have what it says I have. Today I would be taught the word of God. I boldly confess my heart is alert and my mind is receptive. I will never be the same. I'm about to receive the incorruptible, indestructible, ever-living word, ever-living seed of the word of God. I will never be the same, never, 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 never be the same in Jesus' name. <laughs> With a great big smile. Thank you. Nothing against smiling Joel, but please understand. He doesn't have his biblical worldview straight. When you say that homosexuality is not a problem, you have an issue. Homosexuality is the only sin in the Bible that is called an abomination to God. Let's call it what it is. Why hush, hush? No, this is not about homosexuality. I haven't even started yet. I'm sorry. Well, I'm not sorry. I take that back. Amos 3.3 says, how can two walk together if they don't come into agreement? How can two walk together if they don't come into agreement? You want to walk with God? You have to come into agreement. You can't want to walk with God but believe in the law of manifestation, the law of attraction, and repeat a mantra and expect there to be transformation. That is Scientology, people. That is Deepak Chopra. That is Oprah Winfrey. That is not God's word. We have to get things straight. Again, ignorance is not bliss. There are things that never change. Never change. Men can't be women. Women can't be men. Shacking up with someone doesn't make it a marriage. Your boyfriend is not your husband. Your girlfriend is not your wife. You're part of the creation, but you are not the creator. The Bible is true from cover to cover. God's word is sharper than a two-edged sword. Jesus is the only way to the Father. He died on the cross for our sins and our salvation. And he rose on the third day. His blood still washes us as white as snow. He is near and returning for his church soon. So be ready. Those truths are incorruptible and indestructible. They don't change. Those things never change. And Hosea says, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge of my law where I reveal my will. People say, I have yet to hear from God. My question is, have you opened your Bible? If you're expecting God to speak to you like a lot of people say, I heard from God, and I shake when I hear people say that because they better be honest about hearing from God and not from something else, 
because God speaks to us through his word and his word is right there in the Bible. That's his will revealed for our lives. So all you have to do is open it up. He will speak to you through the word. The Bible tells us that people are destroyed for their lack of knowledge. A lack of knowledge creates dysfunction. And remember that dysfunction breeds distortion. Solomon wrote, where there is no vision, the people perish. Perish from the Greek word katastrophime or hanome means to go astray, to spoil, or to die. To go astray, to spoil, or to die. Where there is no vision, the people perish. I said earlier, vision leaks. If we're not continually repeating the vision that God has for our lives, we will soon forget it. And then we will adjust to the patterns of the world. I was telling Pastor Ricky something earlier today that I heard and it was really, it, 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 it bothered me. It just, it, it made me think. I heard uh, R.C. Sproul's, a, a great theologian who passed away a few years ago that I study his work. He said, the sinner's prayer has sent more, hell, more people to hell than the local bar. Yeah, I'm making you think. The sinner's prayer. You know what the sinner's prayer is? Jesus, I accept you as my Lord and Savior. That's the sinner's prayer. And when R.C. Sproul said that, and then I heard someone else, and then someone else, great theologians, it really bothered me. I said, what do they mean by that? And then it started making a lot of sense that a lot of people will come to church, or they will go to a Christian concert, and at the end there is some kind of an altar call. And because you're stirred with emotions, or because your spouse is elbowing you and saying, you need Jesus, they raise their hands and they say, yes to Jesus, and they think, I am now saved. But there is no evidence of salvation. Is there evidence of salvation? Yes, there is. Yes, there is. You will be surprised that people who have been saved for 20 years aren't really saved. Now, once you're saved, you're saved. And Jesus said, nobody can snatch me, snatch you from my hands. Now, if we could lose our salvation, we all would have lost it a few minutes ago. We would lose it every day. If we could lose our salvation, every day we would lose it. But when you think about this statement, it's, it's, it really is insightful. Because a lot of people think that with simply repeating a prayer, that's it. That the heart and the condition of the heart have nothing to do with it. When in all reality, Jesus said, repent. <laughs> that was the message, repent. He never got in front of a crowd and say, repeat after me, which we do that and we lead people because a lot of people are compelled to change and they are in a state of repentance. Many of you that accepted Christ, I am one of them. I prayed that prayer. I was compelled to change. I was repentant of my sin and I fell to my knees and I couldn't stop crying for the whole service. I repented. But if there's no repentance, there's nothing worse than calling a kid to my office because he got in trouble, because he said something or did something, and you see no godly repentance. There's nothing worse than that. 
When the kid comes in and starts crying and you can tell that they're really bothered by what they did, by what they said, by the people they hurt, and they're crying, you can tell that there's godly repentance. But when they come in with arrogance, it's like, yeah, I said it and what? Yeah, I kicked the kid, so? Yeah, I cussed them out, so? There's no godly repentance. You have an issue. That's a heart issue. And so there is evidence of transformation or evidence of salvation. And if this message could have a name, it would be the evidence of salvation. How do I know if I'm saved? How do I know if I'm saved? I would say, first of all, we do not conform to the ways of the world. Number one, you know, Paul said it. Paul said it to the Romans. I repeat this over and over a million times because it's my, like, my key verse. When I do therapy sessions for people who are believers, it's my key verse. Do not conform to the ways of the world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you can test and approve God's perfect, pleasing, and goodwill for your life. Just like that. You don't conform to the ways of the world. And you just found out that Disney went woke. And I have an episode on my podcast called When Mickey Went Woke. It's good stuff. And you just found out that the CEO of Disney said that she's going to make it a point because she has two queer daughters. She's going to make it a point that every, every movie, every Disney movie has 50% of their characters representing LGBTQIAS2+. Yes, they've added a 2 plus and an S. But yet you hear that and you know that and you know that the sequel of Toy Story actually called Lightyear has a homosexual kiss in it. But yet you allow your kids to go and watch it. You're like, it's okay. It's Buzz Lightyear. It's just kid stuff. It's all good. Yeah, 50% of the characters now will represent the ABC crowd. But yet you conform to that. You, you, you don't see anything wrong with that, and that's where you have a problem. But you say you're saved, but yet you conform to those patterns of the world, but then you have to question your Christianity. Am I truly saved? Because when I'm saved, my standard is so much higher, because I know that God's expectation for my life is so much higher than the world's. And so do I subject my kids to this kind of stuff with my own mind? And what does Christ say? Jesus said to bring all things, the scripture says, bring all our thoughts to the submission of Christ. Captive to Christ. Everything, that's our biblical worldview. So how do I know that I am saved? Well, you have to ask yourself the question, what do I love and who do I love? That's the first question. The evidence of salvation is love. Love, not, not selective love. Not, I love you if you love me, or if you do me right, or if you show me courtesy. No, no, you love simply because it's the right thing to do. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said, they will know that you're my disciples by the way that you love others. So you have to ask yourself the question, what do I love and who do I love? Is God at the very forefront of my life? Is he at the pinnacle of my priorities? Is he at the top? The Bible says that God is a jealous God. It says, love God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added. God above all things. 
Is that who is at the top of my life? When I ask my kids, who loves you more than I do? It says, God. Who do you love more than you love me? God. Is that an easy thing to do? No. It's not. It's a decision that we make every day. When people say, when, when, you, when did, was your conversion, Milton? My conversion was five seconds ago. My conversion is every day, every minute, every second. It's a sanctification. It's every day. Oh, when did I say yes to Jesus? Summer of 20, 2001. But my conversion is every day. I'm constantly working on this thing, and it's hard and it's difficult, but with Christ all things are possible. Amen. And so you have to ask yourself the question, what do I love? Do I love his word? Do I love his decrees? Do I love his statutes? Do I love him? Do I love him? Do I love him? Is he in the forefront? Is he the first person that I think about in the morning? Is he the first person that I talk to in the morning? Do I love him? If the answer is yes, well, then that's evidence of salvation. The second one is humility. There has to be humility. The first one was love. The second is humility. It's that conscious awareness of our sinfulness and recognizing God's incredible grace. And people ask me, how are you? <laughs> Better than I deserve, brother. Better than I deserve because I don't deserve what God has given me. Better than I deserve. Humility above all things. Not an arrogance not a pompous heart and a pompous attitude, but a humility. Every day recognizing that his grace is sufficient. Paul went to God and said, I've got this thorn in my flesh, this messenger from Satan. I've asked you three times, God, to remove it, and here it is. Nobody really knows what that was. Nobody knows if it was a, a mental health issue or if it was a, an eye issue, a heart issue. Nobody knows, but all we know is that God responds to him and says, my is, my grace is sufficient. And then Paul realizes, and he has that epiphany, and he says, okay, God, I will make myself weak so that you can make yourself strong in me. In other words, stop trying to do this on your own because you can't. You can't. You can't. You need him. So number two is humility. Number three is obedience. And I'm not talking about perfect obedience because that's impossible, but simply a longing to obey God. Obedience. Obedience. Every child, you know, a parent will tell you, I love all my kids the same, right? Have you ever told your kids that? <laughs> Have you? It's like, like the biggest liar teacher will ever, ever tell their students is I, I like all of you and I treat them all the same. Liar. You got your favorites. You know that. You tell your kids, I love you all the same. My dad, growing up, my dad, I'm the middle child. And my dad uh, always, always told me, he says, son, he would whisper in my ear, you're my favorite. You're my favorite. Seriously. He says, but don't tell your siblings. All right, dad. And man, I felt favored. I obeyed my dad and my mom, and I don't, I don't think I ever, you know, made them upset or anything. And then when I was in my 30s, I said, hey, dad, do you remember what you would whisper in my ear? Am I still your favorite? He says, oh, son, I'm sorry. He says, 
I told your siblings the same thing. He says, but it made you feel good. I say, yeah, it made me feel good. But what I want to say is that we can all be born-again believers in Christ and some more obedient than others. And yeah, God, 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 God hears us and God responds. And, but when you're a parent and you have three kids, which I have two, one is 30 and the other one is nine, so one is already a dad and the other one is, is, is still around there. Very active, keeps me, keeps me young. Um, but when you have three kids... You love them in the same, but you have that one child. Man, obeys everything you ask them to do. They go up to you, and before, before you even ask, how was your day, they come up to you, and they say, how was your day, Dad? I have those students at school. I see them at the end, at the beginning of the day. At the end of the day, I'm walking them over to their cars, and I'll have certain students that will look at me before I say anything, and they'll say, how was your day? Gosh. I'm like, these kids really know how to touch my heart. How was your day? You think that I develop a stronger relationship with those kids? Absolutely. Stronger relationship. They're interested in me. How many times have you said, God, how are you doing today? Lord, I love you. I bless you, Lord. When he's the first person that we seek, we want to be obedient. And the fourth one, the fourth sign of salvation, you have to ask yourself the question, does my faith survive the trials that I face? Does my faith survive the trials that I face? And a lot of people tell me, oh, mostly you, you, you know, you just, you talk about trials, man, but you don't know trials. And I said, have you watched my TED talk? <laughs> Take a box of Kleenex with you and listen to it and make you cry. You'll listen to my trials. I won't, I won't even go there because I want you to watch it anyways. Look it up. It's called You Are What You Think. It's good stuff. Take a box of Kleenex. If you don't know what a TED Talk is, we'll pray for you. All right. Job said this. I mean, I love the story of Job. In Spanish, Job is Job. Job. I remember talking to somebody who, who said they were a devout Christian and had been walking with the Lord for years. And when they were going to read the book of Job, they called him Job. I love that verse in the book of Job. Okay. Anyways, Job said this, and if you know Job's story, you know that Job lost everything except his nagging wife, which that's my question for God. It's like, okay, what's the deal? Was that part of the trial? He lost his beautiful daughters, all of his possessions, all of his cattle. He lost everything, and God referred to Job as his faithful servant. Now, this is very troubling for many. You have to read the book of Job. It's a long one. It's a very tedious one. It's one that needs to be read very slowly to understand it. And you see the influence of his friends, his friends kind of egging him on. And you see the wife, you know, cursing him, in, basically. But he loses everything. But God gives the devil, gives Satan permission to afflict him. You have to read the story. He says, he is my faithful servant my faithful servant. But Job says this somewhere in the chapter, in 13th chapter out of 42 chapters, if I'm not mistaken. By the 13th chapter, he'd already lost everything, everything. And he was sitting in the desert 
with boils all over his body in the desert sun with a piece of clay pot scratching the boils on his body. His wife had already walked by and looked at him and said, and you're still there worshiping your God? Curse your God and die. And she walked away. And then the friends came over and said, hey, what did you do, man? You really, you really upset God. You, he, he's, he's really mad at you. This is why you're going through what you're going through. But God called him his faithful servant. So there he is scratching the boils on his body, but he says this, Job says, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. So my question is, does your faith endure the trial? Because if your faith falls, if it breaks during a trial, then you must question your salvation. I'm not being judgmental, I'm just telling. I'm trying to educate if your faith does not survive a trial, you have a problem. Now, when you accept Christ, it's almost like immediately after you start to go through trials. I went through 15 years of it. 15 years. And then after that, a few years later, we started all over again. And so compounded. And either your faith breaks or it's edified. It's destroyed or it's strengthened. And so the analogy that I love that speaks about what and why God allows us to go through these things, and I say this, listen, I didn't say that God is the orchestrator of the trials and the afflictions. I didn't say that, but I said that God will allow us to go through things. He will allow us to go through things. I allow my nine-year-old to risk himself, educated risks, to climb up a hill, to get on his bike without knee pads and skin his knee, that's educated or calculated risk so that he may become stronger. The worst thing that you can do, and I just posted this on, on, on one of my platforms on social media, the worst thing that a parent can do for an anxious child is to overprotect them. That's the worst thing that you can do for an anxious child is to overprotect them because they never overcome their fears. There's something called in vivo exposure therapy. If you come to me and you say, I'm afraid of heights and I need you to help me overcome my fear of heights, guess what I do? I take you to the highest point in McAllen. <laughs> That's called in vivo exposure therapy. And so God allows us to go through things, but there's the analogy of the goldsmith. And so when the goldsmith was asked by an individual, he said, how do you take or mine gold and create fine jewelry from it? He says, well, it has to go through a process. He says, when I mine it, when I, when I find it, you know, and just remove it from the dirt and the rocks, you have to separate it. He said, it's, it has no form. And so he says, the next thing that I have to do is I have to put it in a cauldron. I have to, I have to put it, apply heat to it. And so when I apply heat to gold, and gold is actually naturally soft, they have to add other elements, other alloys to make it harder, you know, usually add iron to it, you know, to make jewelry. He says, but the first thing that I do, he says, that I have to apply heat to it, and it starts to boil. And as it boils, the impurities rise to the top. And so then I skim off the impurities, and I, and I keep applying more and more heat, more and more heat, more and more heat until finally I'm able to remove all of the impurities. And so the man asked the, uh, the, the goldsmith, and how do you know? 
How do you know when you stop the process? How do you know that it's pure enough to create fine jewelry with it? He said, that's an easy question. He says, the answer is, the moment that I'm able to see my reflection on the gold, I know that it is pure. What does that have to do with us as believers? Well, God allows us to go through the heat. Heat is applied. And we boil. And we boil. And we boil. And as, I, as we overcome, those impurities start rising. They rise. How do we know that we're ready? Or that we are becoming more and more pure? That is when people are able to see the reflection of Christ on us and through us. That's when you know that you're saved. When there's true transformation. Because I'm not the person I used to be. I'm a totally new person. And so you don't go back. So when people ask, Milton, why don't you listen to secular music? Because I did stupid stuff when I listened to secular music. And I don't go back. The Bible says that people go back like dogs go back to their vomit. I don't want to go back to the vomit. And so we constantly go through a process of purification. Constantly. James said, my brothers and sisters, consider it nothing but joy when you fall into all sorts of trials. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect effect, so that you will be perfect and complete, not deficient in anything. In other words, trials are good. I refer to Job. Job also said later on in the book, he said, My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Job had to go through affliction so that God could become more palpable more real in his life. It is not until we go through situations, I say things that people think are ludicrous. I say things like, I'm grateful for cancer. Not in your life, but in mine. Having gone through cancer, I'm grateful. Because through the process, God did something in my life. Had it not been for that, I wouldn't be here with you tonight. I would be a totally different person. There's one more thing that born-again believers do, and this is a sign of salvation, is that they don't look back. They don't look back. And the only reason that you would ever look back, the only reason you would ever look back, is to see how far you have come. And to celebrate and say, oh my, I remember where I was and look at where I am today. And if I've made it thus far in this many years, imagine 10 years from now where I'm going to be. That's it. That's the only reason. But we don't look back because we remember what the angel of the Lord told Lot. <laughs> what he told him, he said, when he was about to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. He was, I mean, deprivation was rampant. The stuff was happening there. You know, I heard someone say that Sodom and Gomorrah was a, was a mixture of Vegas, Bourbon Street, the red light district in, ha in Amsterdam, and the Reaper bomb in Hamburg, Germany. It was like a mix of all of that. All the deprivation was there. All the sin was there. It was, there was homosexuality. Everything, everything was there. And so God says, I'm going to destroy it. I have to start a brand new. A fire and brimstone. 
over Sodom and Gomorrah, but he told Lot and his people, leave. Actually said, run and don't look back. And so he tells his sons-in-law and they laugh. He tells his wife and, and, and gives his wife an instruction. The instruction is don't look back. Don't look back. And so the next day they take off, they run for their lives and she makes a mistake. What does she do? She looks back. And she knew that if she, had, if she looked back, she was begun, going to become a pillar of salt. And so as they're fleeing Sodom and Gomorrah, they're going to, to a safe haven type place. I'm trying to remember the name of the place, uh, Zoar. They're going to Zoar, and so they're, they're fleeing. And as they're fleeing, and I'm assuming he's grabbing her, and he's running, and she turns back. And the moment she turns back, she becomes a pillar of salt. Now, I don't know if it literally she became a pillar of salt or something happened and she was just zapped off the face of the earth. I don't know. But what I do know is that she looked back. The question is, why was she looking back? Well, she was looking back maybe at a comfortable life. Maybe she was looking back at her comadres. I'm leaving my comadres behind. Maybe she was looking back at the possessions that she had, at the cush life that she was living, at the comfort of the time. Maybe she liked living in that kind of depravity. Who knows? But what she did was she looked back. And so someone who is saved doesn't look back. You don't have that second thought like, ah, oh, if I weren't saved, I could go do that. I, I could still go downtown and party. I just can't go back and party anymore. Man, I, I just don't, you know, I, I, she looked back. Jesus in Luke 17, 32 uses Lot's wife as an example. He says, remember Lot's wife. Jesus said that, Luke 17, 32. As he's teaching his disciples, he says, remember Lot's wife. Lot's wife never made it. She lagged behind her husband and looked back despite the messenger's advice. Listen, Lot's wife left Sodom, but Sodom never left her. And so, once again, just to recap, what and who do I love? Humility, obedience, trials, and not looking back. Those are the signs. Those are the signs. Jesus said something that uh, we don't read a whole lot in church. In Luke 9, 62, Jesus said, anyone who starts plowing and keeps looking back isn't worth a thing to God's kingdom. It's tough. Anyone who starts plowing and keeps looking back isn't worth a thing to God's kingdom. You heard at one point, when I talked about my grandpa, didn't have a John Deere, had an old rusty plow and two oxen. And I was nine years old and I was staring at the field and he had these beautiful rows that he was going to, he was about to start sowing seed in those rows. And he was, he was poor and, and I remember that we were visiting him and I was just looking at these beautiful rows and an old rusty plow that he had been, someone had given to him. It was a, it was a hand-me-down type thing and no, nothing fancy, no technology and those two oxen that didn't look strong enough to pull the plow, but those rows were beautiful. 
and I ask them the question, how do you do it? How do you do it, Grandpa? And he says, it's simple. He says, look around. Do you see the fence? I said, yes. He says, do you see the fence posts? I said, yes. He said, they're all placed at the same distance apart from each other. They're all the same, same distance. And they go around the property. You see that? I said, yes. He says, so I have to make sure that the first row that I plow, the first row is perfectly straight. He said, then after that, all I have to focus on is on the post. I just focus on the next post and the next post. He says, as long as I keep my hands on the plow, my eyes on the post, and I let the oxen do the work, he says, my rows are always going to be straight. He says, it's very simple. He says, so keep in mind that you always have to stay focused. Focused. And that was something that had a deeper deeper value. It was, there was a lot of wisdom in what my grandfather was saying, but at nine years of age, I just didn't understand. My father was standing there next to him. And so many years later, as I was with my father, I must have been in my uh, early 30s, struggling with all the trials that I was facing. My dad looks at me on the corner of Three Mile and Ware Road as we came to a red light. And he looks at me and he says, do you remember your grandfather's wisdom. And I said, what are you talking about? He says, remember when you were nine years old and you were asking him about how he plowed the field, how he made those perfect rows? I said, yeah, maybe. Kind of vaguely remember. He said, well, I want you to understand this. He says, you have to put your hands to God's purpose in your life. He says, that's the plow. This is the oxen represent, he says, the Holy Spirit. He says, in the post, that's Jesus Christ. He said, if you want your life to always end up at a good destination and you want those perfectly and beautifully aligned rows in your spiritual walk, he said, you have to keep your eyes on the post and the post has a name and his name is Jesus. So I leave you with that. Amen. I leave you with that and I hope that today's message compels you to change and to start doing a little more studying and get into the word. Don't conform to the ways of the world because the ways of the world are like a whirlwind. The moment that you keep, you take your eyes off the post, you will become like Peter when Jesus called him on the water. He took a step into the water. He knew that was Jesus. He saw Jesus. Jesus called him over took a step into the water and the moment that he took his eyes off of Jesus because he heard the wind he saw the waves he was filled with fear he was distracted and therefore he started to sink don't become distracted keep your eyes on him